Good afternoon, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you and your families, and if we do have visiting families and friends here, uh, welcome to our church. Just like to, again, remind you to please stay afterwards for a time of refreshments. We'd love to sit down with you and get to know you and spend time with you. Well, on this Christmas service, if you have God's word, please turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. And we'll be looking at two verses today, verses 11 and 12. John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. May God bless the reading of his most holy and living word. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father of eternal glory, we thank you for your word. The word which was from the beginning. The word which has always been with you. And the word which shares your divinity. The word that was made flesh and dwelt among us. Grant to us minds and hearts to behold the word by the spirit of the word. Help us to receive it and believe upon your word and to treasure it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the things I enjoy most about this time of year is receiving Christmas cards from family and friends. And now that I'm at the age where my friends are married with children, the only cards that I seem to get are the ones with a family portrait. But some of you remember some of the old school cards where you actually had to write something in there. Some of you have probably received Christmas cards at your home, and also you know the joy and the warmth of receiving a card. And one of the uh, enjoyable things about a Christmas card is the chance and the opportunity to hear from people who are miles away, people who we miss so dearly. And although we can't see one another as often as we'd like, Christmas is a great opportunity to send a card, to write something encouraging as a reminder of our love and our prayers to them. In fact, that's what Christmas is all about. Some 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus to become one of us while at the same time being God so that we might know his love for us. And in a a sense, we can say that the Savior that was born in a manger in Bethlehem was like a living Christmas card expressing God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son would be the hallmark greeting on God's Christmas card to us. But what, what if one day before Christmas, you were getting the mail and in the pile of other Christmas cards that you received, there was one that stood out. It stood out not for the reasons that you would think. It was dark, black, and raggedy. Certainly not the kind of colors and kind of card you would associate with the joys of a Christmas card. Your first reaction is, this is a mistake. It must be for my grouchy neighbor. But then you look at a card and you look at it a little more closely, and it's definitely addressed to your name. You quickly see who it's from, and in bold letters it reads, from the one and true and only God. Frightened you, carefully open the envelope, and you take the card out. And on the front greeting, it reads, The Tragedy of Christmas. 
And below it is a verse from John 1.11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, in some ways, this is one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Now, we often talk and sing of how marvelous it was that God came in the flesh and he dwelt among us. And we sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. But there is a side of his coming that is more tragic than all the skills of a William Shakespeare could ever portray. And we want to look at the tragic side of his coming for a few moments today. Now, perhaps this is not what you were expecting on this Christmas service. You were probably expecting to hear about baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary and the shepherds of the field and the wise men rejoicing and worshiping the king. And if you're here visiting for the first time, you may be wondering if you came to the wrong church, to some joyless church. But I want to assure you that before you do hear the joys of Christmas, you must first hear of the tragedy of Christmas. Now, when you read the Gospels, one of the things you'll notice is that the authors each present Jesus with a certain emphasis depending on the audience that he was writing to. The Gospel of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, and Matthew presents Jesus as the promised Messiah and King. Mark is written to a Gentile audience, and he presents Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord. Luke is writing to Theophilus to confirm the faith that he had rested in the historical facts and presented Jesus according to the plan of God. John is writing to a Jewish and God-fearing unbelievers. And he presents Jesus as the Son of God and that believing in Jesus brings life to the believer. Now what you'll also notice is that in each of the Gospels, the authors have a different starting point. Matthew begins with Abraham, Mark with John the Baptist, Luke with Zechariah and Elizabeth. But John's gospel begins with the beginning, back in eternity. John begins his gospel in this way, in the beginning. That is, even before the world was created, was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. It is John's prerogative throughout the gospel to set forth Jesus as God, as equal with God, as the Son of God. And in a fascinating manner, we are told for the first time in John 1.11 that he came. This is the first suggestion that we have from John of Jesus' incarnation as clarified in verse 14. And the Word became flesh. This is how Jesus, the only Son of God, came and visited our planet to become like one of us. This is the wonder and the mystery of Christmas. As one of my favorite Puritan authors, Thomas Watson, says, that man should be made in God's image is a wonder, but that God should be made in man's image is a greater wonder. The more we think of how Jesus became flesh and blood without any loss of his deity, it staggers our imagination. Perhaps Charles Wesley has put the mystery best. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That Jesus is fully God and that Jesus is fully man is a stumbling block to the belief for Jews today, to Muslims, 
to Jehovah's Witnesses and many others today. They can't wrap their minds around this. And because of it, Jesus is reduced to a mere moral example, a good teacher, a prophet, but not God. Now, you may remember there was a best-selling book on religion and spirituality in 2013. It was Bill O'Reilly's Killing Jesus. It accounts the historical facts of Jesus' life leading to his death. Now, that book, for the most part, is accurate as far as the historical facts goes. But there is no assertion in that book that Jesus was God in the flesh, but only that Jesus believed he was the Son of God. Now, you can affirm that Jesus existed all you want. You can even affirm that he was a remarkable man. You can even believe that Jesus actually died in the torment of crucifixion of crimes he did not commit. But if you take away Jesus, that he was God in flesh, all you really have is another biography of a human being with no eternal significance. It's the very fact that Jesus came as God dressed in flesh that salvation from hell and forgiveness of sins is possible. God knew that man left to himself could never pay for their sins. So it was necessary for God to send his own son to the world to pay for man's sins. Those words, he came in verse 11, should not be read lightly, nor should we skip past this so quickly. The story of compassion and mercy and redeeming love are all here in those two words. He came. Now ponder that for a moment. The almightiness of God moved in a human arm. The love of God now beat in the human heart. The wisdom of God now spoke from his lips. The mercy of God reached forth with his hands. God was always a God of love, but when Christ came to the earth, love was wrapped up in human flesh. Jesus was God with skin on, and all the redeeming love that he could pour out his heart are at the very least spelled out in those two simple words, he came. Listen to some Bible verses that speak of why Jesus came. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Jesus himself testifies in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And perhaps most wonderful of all, in 2 Corinthians 8.9, it gets to the heart and compassion of Christ of why he came into the world. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so all the hopes of humanity, all the hopes of peace and forgiveness are found in those two words, he came. Now as rich and beautiful as those words he came are, The next words adds to our amazement when John writes, he came to his own. Now, it's important to mention that there are two words that mention own in verse 11, yet they're different in meaning. The first use of own, which is in a neuter form, means that 
one's own things, one's own possession. And so essentially it means that Jesus came to his own home. He came to his own world. The same expression is used in John 19, 27, where it states that the beloved disciple took Jesus' mother to his own home. This world which, which we live in, drive from place to place, the world which we breathe is the Lord's. He made it all and he owns it all. Now sometimes, especially during Christmas time, we treat Jesus as if he is our honored guest. We treat this world as if it's our own and welcome Jesus into our world. Our Lord Jesus is not a guest here. It's actually his home. He owns it all. He creates it. Rather, he is the host and we are the guest. We are here by his kindness and mercy. And if you're sitting here in this room today, you are brought into this world because he created you. We are simply guests in his home. You know, in G. Campbell Morgan's book, The Crisis of the Christ, he has a fascinating observation of Jesus in the world, especially in the setting in the wilderness. He points out that many people have a wrong idea of Jesus in the wilderness. And when Jesus was in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. And according to Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus was with the wild beast. Now, people often view that in pitying Jesus and wondered how he could ever be near these wild beasts and thought that these wild beasts have wanted to attack Jesus. And they viewed Jesus of surviving only by the protection of his angels. But Morgan says, no, it was not true. The wild beasts recognized their king and they crept to his feet and licked them and lay down beside him. These wild beasts recognized their Lord and their maker. And these ferocious, untamed lions kneeled beside their Savior. And at the very bear that might have devoured another man knelt at the feet of Jesus. Quite a picture, isn't it? When Jesus came into this world, nature itself, you see, recognized their maker. The wind blew for his pleasure. The storm hushed at his word. The stars smiled at night upon where Jesus slept. The trees and mountains and birds all worshipped their maker. The natural world recognized their maker. But not the human world. This is the tragedy of Christmas. If you look at one verse earlier in verse 10, it says that he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. That is the human world, ignored him, didn't even recognize him. Now, this reminds me of an experiment done by the Washington Post in 2007. During the morning rush hour, the world-famous violinist Joshua Bell, he stood at the side of the entrance to the Leonfont Plaza metro station, and he played a brilliant classical medley for about 45 minutes. It was as Post reporter Gene Wayne Garten explained an experiment in context, perception and priorities, as well as unblinking assessment of public taste. Joshua Bell routinely filled up concert halls worldwide. And days before this experiment, an audience in Boston had paid about $100 apiece to see him perform. And so in this plaza, he was playing this expensive violin made in 1713, reportedly worth 
$3.5 million. And on that Washington morning, the master violinist collected exactly $32.17 from the few who actually stopped. Most of the 1,000-plus commuters who hurried through the station that morning didn't even slow down. And you know what? I probably wouldn't have slowed down my pace either. If I had rushing through that plaza that morning, I might not even have noticed him. He was hidden in plain sight. Now, Jesus came to the world he created. And the world had no clue who he was. John tells us he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Jesus was actually the source of their very life. But they could not see us. What could be more unreasonable, the reformer John Calvin asked, than to draw water from a running stream and never to think of the fountain from which that stream flows? John answers that question for us in verse 11. The tragedy of Christmas is that Jesus came to his own home and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, I told you that the first use of own speaks of reference to one's home. The second use here of own has a more specific definition. It speaks of his own people, the nation of Israel. He came to his own home, to his own people, yet they did not welcome him. Now, this is exactly what we find in the scriptures, isn't it? When the kingly Jesus was born as a baby and Joseph and Mary were looking for a room to give birth to the Savior of the world, we read in Luke 2, 7 that there was no room that was found even in the inn. The innkeepers rejected him. A few days later, Jesus, we, we heard, was carried to Egypt to be saved from the murderous Herod who attempted to kill Jesus. When Jesus was a full adult and came back to his hometown of Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff. His own immediate family who grew up to see Jesus grow in wisdom and stature, they thought Jesus was an insane man. The very leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, the high priests, rejected Jesus as the Messiah and gave him the heinous name of a blasphemer. And over the whole of Jerusalem, Jesus wept, all because they received him not. And at last, his own people condemned him to death. And before Pontius Pilate, Choosing a robber in his stead, they cried away with him, crucify him. This is just what the prophet Isaiah spoke of in the Old Testament, Isaiah 1, 2 to 3. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared up and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Listen, Jesus came to Fremont, and they did not receive him. Jesus came to our families, and they rejected him by being preoccupied with earthly gifts rather than the eternal gift of life. Jesus came to this nation, and they rejected him with all their propaganda to take Christ out of Christmas. Instead, they say, Happy holidays. They rejected him in their stripped down and Christless tunes. They rejected him by raising their own version of the calf idol of Santa Claus and elves and reindeers and accepting some false illusion of the Christmas spirit. Now, I'm no Grinch. I enjoy those things more than and the next. 
But I want you to know that some of you here have not received Jesus. And for that reason, we need to consider why you have rejected him. Why you have not received him. Why do people reject him today? Well, the first reason we reject Jesus has to do with personal cleansing. Receiving Jesus means a thorough inward house cleaning. Jesus taught that the pure in heart shall see God. Jesus taught that you cannot serve God and money. This reason keeps many from receiving Christ today. Before Christ will come in there, there must be a thorough and a radical house cleaning. But you know, some of us would rather have the dirt than the Son of God. Some of us would rather live in the darkness than come to the light. We would rather have our houses dirty than to be clean. When Jesus says, all right, I'll help you get rid of the mess. Oh, we say, no, Jesus, I love that mess. I was brought up in it. And because we love dirt, because we love sin's pleasure, we love amusing ourselves with the filth of sin, and so we reject Christ. Rightly does Jesus say that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. Some people just love dirt so much that they don't want to be cleansed. The second reason we reject Jesus is that it would mean a complete change of direction for them. It would mean not only a radical house cleaning, but also a radical change of life. Jesus said, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know, we don't like that kind of talk of being a Christian today. We think that that's being too serious, too demanding of Christ. But is it? Is it not right for the Lord Jesus Christ who created this world and came to the world he created to save sinners, to demand anything less than radically changing the course of our lives and following him? We reject him because we think our course of life is better and more profitable. When Jesus says to us, for what does a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus offers something infinitely better, eternal life for your soul. Yet we reject him because we are not willing to take up our cross and follow him. We'd rather have our own way. What it comes down to is that we do not receive Jesus is because we want something else instead. I want money. I want fame. I want a house. I want that career. I want a legacy. I want popularity. I want comfort, and I want ease of life. That is the tragedy of Christmas. We want something else instead of Jesus. A.W. Tozer writes that if some Shakespeare could write the vast, elemental, boundless, fathomless tragedy of humanity, it would be that we loved our sin more than we love our God. Friends, I am convinced that this is more terrible than terrorist attacks. This is more tragic than diseases and cancer. The most tragic and terrible thing in the world is not the danger outside of us, but inside us. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. How tragic, how terrible. 
Now, that is one Christmas card we did not see coming. But then as you open this dark, tragic Christmas card, in bold and shiny, glittering letters, it reads, but, oh, those marvelous buts of the Bible, they are small hinges on which great truths and destiny swing. He came to his own, and, and those who were his own did not receive him. Thank God that was not the end of the story. Verse 12, but as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. In this verse, there are three key words I want to point out to your attention. They are receive, believe, and write. First, receive. As many as received him. You must receive him. This word means to welcome a visitor into your home. Only in this case, we realize that we are the honored guests and Christ is the host of his party, giving us an invite to his party. By his mercy and love, even though we have already rejected him, he continues to send out his invitation of the free offer of the gospel. We merely accept this offer. You know, I, I continually hear at church services and churches that I grew up in that unbelievers are told to give their hearts to Jesus. Now, of course, that is true and we must do so, but that's not our first concern. It's not about what you give to Jesus, but what Jesus gives to you. You must take himself as his gift to you. Then you will give your heart to him. Now, receiving Jesus means welcoming him into your life for all that Jesus is. If Jesus offers himself as a savior, you welcome his salvation for your life. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, but by receiving Jesus as savior, as accomplishing in his death and resurrection. If Jesus offers himself as Lord, you welcome his authority in every dimension of your life. He becomes the master of your every desire. If Jesus offers himself as prophet, and as teacher, you welcome his teaching to guide your priorities of your life. You don't get to pick and choose what you want to follow in those difficult parts of Scripture. Every commandment and teaching of Scripture governs your life when you receive him. If Jesus offers himself as a priest, you welcome his bloody sacrifice as a substitution for your sins. The only thing that you can do is to admit yourself that you are a sinner desperate for mercy and receive Jesus as the only remedy for your sin. And if Jesus offers himself as king, you welcome his rule in your life so that your rule and your way dies in your life. And if I receive Jesus as prophet and priest, I must give him allegiance as my king. Christ the king reigns. And you cannot truly receive Jesus unless you are willing to submit under the kingship. And listen, receiving Jesus doesn't mean accepting him only when it's convenient for you, only when you need something from him. It's, it's not temporary. It's not a fad in life. It's not a Sunday thing. Receiving Jesus, you see, does not mean having, it's kind of like having a roommate in your life and living in a peaceful coexistence and that Jesus can stay there as long as his music is not too loud. Receiving Jesus means taking him into your life your home, your work, your relationships, your ambitions, your priorities, your desires, all that Jesus Christ is. Can you, dear friends, receive Jesus as prophet and as priest 
and king. If you cannot receive Jesus in this way, then you cannot have him at all. Receiving Jesus means all that Christ is in your life. But the second word is believe. The second word clarifies the first so that to receive is to believe. Now believe means to trust him with all your hearts, to rest on him so completely that he is your only hope of heaven. It's an act of total commitment. I want you to notice how John puts it. Even to those who believe in his name. It's not simply believing about him, nor is it believing him. It is believing in him and on him. Now, scholars commenting on this meaning of these Greek words say that this is a very unusual construction in the Greek to believe in his name. We're almost like believing or entrusting ourselves into Christ. That is to say, over and above believing certain truths about God, I am living in a relation of commitment to God in trust and in union. Friends, when do you trust in another person? When you go to a doctor for surgery, I need to investigate him or her. I need to know if he has good reputation, that they've done this surgery over 100 times and it's not their first. And if I think that you're a good doctor, I will trust you to cut me open. Or in a lawyer for advice, there's a level of trust that you need to have. But I think a better one is is the one you decide to marry. Because that means that I've gotten to know you. And I've understood who you are. And I'm going to trust you to be faithful to me for the rest of our life. There's a deep sense of personal commitment on the part of a husband and wife and the wife to the husband That's the rich sense of this word believing and trusting in. And of course, Jesus is more trustworthy than any bridegroom or bride, isn't he? He's the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never fail us. And once we are familiar to know who Jesus is, then we say that he is the one whom I can trust as my Savior. That's saving faith. Now, this is the hardest part of salvation because... Everything in our human nature tells us to rely on ourselves and our own human resources. But saving faith is transferring reliance upon ourselves to Christ alone for salvation. And it is here that the most characteristic act of saving faith appears because it's an engagement from a person to person. Specifically an engagement of the lost sinner to the person of the Savior Jesus Christ. This is the message of Peter to the house of Cornelius. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. This is Paul's message to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And here in John 1.12, it says, even to those who believe in his name. Why his name? Well, his name is the key to our salvation. When Jesus was about to be born, the Lord sent a messenger to Joseph with the command, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To believe on his name is to believe in what his name signifies. It is to believe that Jesus can save me from my sins. It is believing in this Christ that will effectually save your soul. To believe 
is to trust. And you prove that you believe in Christ by risking everything upon him. There's a wonderful hymn by Horatius Bonner that speaks of faith in Christ this way. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death. I stake my whole eternity. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Believing in Jesus means that you're willing to stake your whole eternity upon him. And so go to him as sinners and call him Jesus. And dear friend, call out to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me from my sins. Save me for I need your salvation. Do not doubt the name of Jesus. For there is no greater power than in the name of Jesus. Only confess to him your sin. Only believe upon him and he will be your salvation. Now there's a third word that John mentions in this glorious invitation. And this word is right. The word, this word means honor or privilege. The moment you receive Christ in your life, the moment that you believe and trust in his name, God gives you the tremendous honor of becoming a member of his family. To all who received him and believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the honor to become children of God. It is an unspeakable privilege to be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. You see, you are either here in God's family or you are outside God's family. And by receiving Jesus in your life and trusting in him, God includes you as a personal member within the family circle of God. There is a story told of a king who was holding court in his throne room. His counselors and advisors and noblemen and the ministers of state were all there. And suddenly there was a loud banging at the door. And hearing the clatter all heads turned in that direction. Now immediately the door burst open and into the room ran a little boy. Run of the royal guards tried to stop the boy saying, here now boy, don't you know that you are interrupting the counsel of your king? The little boy kept running toward the king and he replied, he's your king, but he's my daddy. And with that he leaped into the arms of his father. You see, as God's children, we outrank all others in the kingdom. We have access to our Father at all times, for we are sons and his daughters. That is why John marveled in 1 John 3, 1, about the exalted position enjoyed by those who have received and believed in Jesus. That is the honor. That is the privilege that God gives to those who receive Jesus and believe upon his name. The only question left before us is quite simple. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The world ignored him. His own people rejected him. But now what will you do with Jesus? Have you received Jesus Christ in your life? Well, I just don't have enough experience, cries one. Another says, I, I just don't know enough. Yet another says, I, I just need some more time. I'm not sure. I haven't given too much thought of it. I'm a bit, bit preoccupied right now, says another. Oh, my dear friends, hear this glorious invitation again. It says, but to all 
who did receive him. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Think about those words, to all who, or as many as. That invitation of Christ is open to you, to all who includes you, my friend, today. doesn't matter how sinful you are. It doesn't matter what horrible past you had. It doesn't matter your rank in this world. It doesn't matter what abilities you have or not. To all who includes all who are here today. To all who means whosoever. The offer is on the table at this very moment. Salvation is given to you if you would only receive it by faith. Jesus Christ offers infinitely more than all the world can offer you. So will you receive Jesus Christ today? You know, there's a delightful story of Wallace Perling. He was a young man. He's been given a big part in the annual Christmas program. Now, this year, he had a speaking part. He only had one line, but he was thrilled at this opportunity. Wallace was given the part of the innkeeper who would turn and marry and Joseph away. His job was to answer and knock at his door and listen to the plea of Joseph and say, No, be gone. But a night of the pageant finally came. And Wallace had practiced hard, and he was ready. And as the production began, he listened with great intensity to the Christmas story. And finally, Mary and Joseph worked their way to his door. His heart was pounding. His time was about to come. And when Wallace opened the door, there stood Mary and Joseph. They looked so tired. Joseph told how Mary was expecting a child, and they were so weary. But Wallace looked straight ahead, and he said, no. Be gone, just as he had practiced. But this is where the story gets interesting. You see, Wallace didn't shut the door. Instead, he watched the couple walk dejectedly away. And finally, Wallace said, wait, you can have my room. Now, some thought that the Christmas pageant had been ruined, but others thought it was the best Christmas program ever. This is what it means to receive Christ, you see. You receive Jesus by opening the door of your life and inviting him to come in. Christ Jesus is knocking on your door today. Receive him in your life. Believe upon his precious name and he will give you the honor and the privilege of becoming a children of God. Let's pray together. Our Father Almighty, you tell us in your word, that the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Yet how tragic that you sent your only son in the world and we received him not. There is nothing sadder in this world than to turn you away when this awesome gift of salvation is being offered. We become like the pitiful picture of the rich young ruler who walked away sorrowfully from the gift of eternal life because he was extremely rich. But, oh, Lord, how can money or possessions or fame, all things in this world that fades, ever compare to the everlasting gift of eternal life? Help, we pray, for those who have not received your Son to see the folly of their sins and the incomprehensible nature of rejecting the one who can save them from their sins. By your spirit, give them the new spiritual birth 
so that they may receive you and believe upon your name. And it is in the name of Jesus, our all-sufficient Savior, we pray. Amen.